You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Second Timothy chapter 2, we're going to pick it up at verse 14, and the plan this evening is just to finish through to the end of the chapter. And if I were to give a title to this section of scripture, uh, chapter 14 to the end of the chapter, I would just say it, uh, keeping a focus on the main things. Or as somebody has once said, you know, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And, and, and there's a lot of truth to that. It, it's very easy for us to suffer from, from just sort of a, a, a creeping idea of what our mission, of what our calling is. And you really sense that as Paul wrote from a prison cell... Because we remind ourselves, context is so important when we're taking a look at these letters that Paul wrote. Paul wrote this not only from a prison cell, but with a, a, a conscious awareness that his life would soon be given in martyrdom. I mean, I suppose Paul allowed for the uh, possibility that maybe at the last moment there'd be some kind of miraculous reprieve. Uh, Paul had probably seen a few of those in his lifetime. Yet you, you, you have this sense as you really take a look closely at this letter of 2 Timothy. Paul, Paul knew this was the end. The finish line was in sight. He, he just had to stay faithful to the very end. And in light of that, you can tell there's an evident urgency in his heart to pass on to Timothy those things that really are the main thing and to encourage Timothy to make the main thing the main thing. So we pick it up with that thought here at verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Again, after reminding Timothy of the essential points of the gospel, Paul added that Timothy must always remind his hearers of these things. Timothy's job as a pastor and as an overseer of other pastors was to keep his congregation always focused on the gospel and the truth of God. Look, there's something about us as human beings, and I suppose it's been true about human beings always, but it's never been more true than here we are in the 21st century, that as human beings we're attracted to novelty. We want something new, something fresh, something out of the ordinary. You know, we, we just, if it's new, it must be good. And there's always this tendency for, for us as believers is, well, you know, don't remind me of the same things. Tell me something new. Tell me something. Like, now look, we, we always want, we always want the eternal truths of God to impact us in a new and fresh way. And I think if we open up our heart and our mind truly to examining God's truth, it will impact us in a new and a true way. But fundamentally, we need to be reminded. We need to be brought back to the same things again and again. That's why he says, remind them of these things. Now, what were the these things? Well, if you just go back a few verses, I think it's plain. Look at verse 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Well, that was one thing. The thing of 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. That Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And when we think of Jesus on the cross, Jesus buried, Jesus risen from the dead, that is surely something central for us to keep in mind in the Christian message. And then also the things of 2 Timothy chapter 2 
verses 11, 12, and 13, where he said, For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Again, this focus on what Jesus has done for us and God's faithfulness in the midst. Remind them of these things. Now, in contrast to that word of keeping God's people on message, so to speak, where they need to be in thinking about what God has done for us, in contrast to that, look at what he tells them not to do. It's right there in verse 14. Not to strive about words to no profit. At the same time, there were things that Timothy must not focus upon. Listen, the church must stand for the truth, but the church fundamentally is not a debating society. And we can get so easily distracted by endless discussions over strife over things that don't have central importance. Now, there's any number of doctrinal hand grenades that I could roll down the center aisle right now and and that we could have a really good debate about. Matter of fact, some of those things are such good doctrinal hand grenades that I could debate either side of it. It's just, you give me a side, I'll debate either side. And I I might have my own slant or opinion of this or that, but listen, we got to realize that there is a place in the Christian world where you're arguing about things that are up to no profit. Somebody does this. Nobody believes they do it. Man, I've talked to some guys who get so heated and divisive, sometimes over theological minutia, and and they would think, no way, I'm not striving about words, no problem, but I I believe they would be. So again, this is a delicate line we need to walk in the Christian life. Is doctrine important to us as believers? Yes. But is there a realm where we argue endlessly about things that have no profit? Yes, we can be guilty as that as well. And look at the danger of that. It's to the ruin of the hearers. If we lose focus, it'll be to the ruin of the hearers. This is what the Bible says. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yet if people do not hear the word of God, the ruin will come by hearing the opinions and speculations and entertainment of men. And this is what we should not allow to happen. The word of God must be forefront and letting the central themes of the word of God remain the central themes of our preaching. So keep focused. Don't be distracted by unprofitable things. But now verse 15, keep focused. Pay attention to your own life and ministry. Look at this in verse 15. It's an absolutely essential verse for any person who has any kind of service to God. It says this, be diligent To present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Again, we think of these continual exhortations to be diligent, to work hard. Paul always had in mind that the service he gives to God is something filled with energy and hard work. To do what? To present yourself approved to God. Now notice, number one, Timothy's focus in regard to this was to present himself approved to God. Isn't there a constant distraction in our life where I want to present you approved to God? Now, I do want to present you approved to God. But ultimately, isn't that between you and God? That There comes a place in the Christian life where I'd much rather work on your problems than mine. I'd much rather confess your sins than my own. And on and on. So there's some folks that, no, I need to be diligent to present myself approved to God, number one. But notice, approved to God. 
It's not so much presenting yourself to other people, but to God. He wasn't to regard the job of being a pastor as a popularity contest, but as a call to faithfulness to God. As a worker, again, you can't get away from this. I'm amazed. I really need to go through some time and document every time in Paul's letters where he refers to the work of the ministry as a work. I mean, it's twice in this one verse. Be diligent as a worker who does not need to be ashamed. It's embarrassing, isn't it, to do a job poorly? Have you ever thought about in your own life? You did a job poorly and it was very embarrassing to you? Well, you don't want to be that way in your service to God. No, we have another motivation to work diligently for the Lord. We don't want to be ashamed when our work is examined. And the Bible tells us that our work will be examined on a day of judgment before God, not a judgment for our salvation, but a judgment of our service, a judgment of our faithfulness. We don't want to be ashamed on that day. And for Timothy and other people who handle the word of God in the way that they serve God, notice what the measure is or at least one of the measures, he says it right there in verse 15, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's one of the things that a preacher, a teacher, a pastor must be concerned with, rightly dividing the word of God. you got to know what it says and what it doesn't say. You need to know how it needs to be understood and how it's not to be understood. It's not enough for Timothy to know some Bible stories. It's not enough for him to know some verses and to sprinkle them through their sermons as illustrations. By the way, you know, that's why some people preach. They sprinkle a few Bible verses through their message to illustrate the stories that they're making. Now, listen, that, that's no way week in, week out to faithfully teach the Word of God. Instead, you make the text itself your focus. Timothy wasn't to do that. No, his teaching was to be a right dividing of the word of God, correctly teaching his congregation. Now, I find it fascinating that when you dig into that phrase, rightly dividing, that phrase in the original language that the Bible was written in, it had many different associations. In other words, when they use that phrase, rightly dividing, in other ancient literature outside of the Bible, it would have several different associations. Here are some of the associations it might have. Number one, rightly dividing had the idea of how you would handle a sword. I mean, when you handle a sword, you're trying to divide something, aren't you? Maybe you're trying to divide you know, a guy's hand from his arm, but you're trying to divide something. So it has the idea of skillfully handling the word of God, rightly divided as the way that a skillful swordsman would handle his sword. That's rightly dividing. Here's another way that the word was used. It was used to plow straight furrows when the farmer did his work of plowing. Can you picture the farmer there behind the ox and he's plowing his field? Well, if you're not skillful, if you're not doing a good job, if you're not diligent, your furrows are going to be all over the place and your your fields are going to be a mess. But if you rightly divide, you're going to keep that plow straight and it's going to go straight ahead and your fields are going to be proper and you're going to have a better yield. So you need to plow straight with the word of God, properly presenting the essential doctrines. 
Then there was another connotation to this idea of rightly dividing. It was the idea of how a priest would dissect and arrange the parts of the animal in sacrifice to the gods. You know, in the ancient world, not only in Judaism, but in other uh, ritualistic religions where they would sacrifice to the gods, you, you wouldn't just take a goat and throw it on a fire and say, there's the sacrifice. You wouldn't do it that way. The, the priest was something of a butcher, and he would open the animal up. And he would take this part and he'd say, this I will present to the gods and I'll arrange it on the altar in this way. And this will be given to the priest and this will be given to the offerer and this will be thrown away. You, you had to dissect and arrange the sacrifice in the right way. And that's what a skilled pastor does with the word of God. He dissects it and he arranges it so that God's people can learn from it. And then that word, one more idea, rightly dividing had the idea of allotting to each person their portion as someone distributes food at a table. In other words, you all sit down at the table and everybody puts out their plate and it's like, here's for you, here's for you, here's for you. And the idea is simply that everybody gets fed to the proportion, what they can handle. When you got the child at the table, the little baby, you don't put out a great big helping of, you know, prime rib on the child's plate and say, dig in. You, you give them something that's suited to them. But then again, you know, you're not giving the, the teenager baby food. You're giving them something suitable to them. So the idea is apportioning out correctly. No, friends, this idea of rightly dividing the word of truth, how important it is for everyone who handles the word of God, the pastor, the preacher, the teacher, and it also suggests that if there is rightly dividing the word of truth, what is there on the opposite? There is wrongly dividing the word of truth. We need to understand that biblical truth is not a matter that's just left up to everyone's interpretation. Now the reason why I bring this up is this is such a common way for the culture at large to look at the Bible and Because the culture looks at the Bible this way, that way of thinking has also infected the church in many ways. But this is the way that the culture looks at the Bible and say, okay, mister, you got your Bible, but the Bible is like a stretchy toy. You can stretch it into any shape you want. You just interpret it any way you want. It doesn't really mean anything. The only thing that matters is how you interpret it. That is such a commonly held idea about the Bible. That it's just any interpretation of stuff. But listen, this is what we have to understand. You, you can't just say that the Bible means whatever you want it to say. Some people say, well, you interpret the Bible one way. I interpret my way. Another person interprets their way. Who's to say what's right? Listen, we have to get beyond the place where we just think that's just your interpretation. I'm going to say something. I, I hope it doesn't sound arrogant um, because I say it allotting for my own imperfections which are many but when somebody says to me well that's just your interpretation I say well it is my interpretation but it's also the correct interpretation (laughs) now I, I, I don't say that with the idea that I am the master of everything in the Bible and this, because surely there are places where my interpretation of the Bible needs to be corrected and improved but 
I can tell you this before God and each and every one of you, I do not knowingly hold to a single wrong interpretation of the Bible. It's not like, well, I know this is the wrong one, but I'm going to believe it just because I, I want to. No, I mean, I, I try to let the biblical evidence convince me, and I know that that work isn't finished until I go to him glory, and, and, and when I'm finally with, in, with Jesus in glory, that work will be perfected. But what we can't do is approach the Bible as a book that cannot be rightly divided, that any way that anybody divides it is just as good as any other way that people divide it. No, the Bible is a book with a real message. We can't just pick the interpretation that's most comfortable to us or that fits in with the rest of our worldview. No, we have to rightly divide the word of truth. Let me give you just a very simple example of this. This is an example I like to use. I use this example frequently, but I think it's a good one. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus said something that, if unbelievers know any verse in the Bible, they know this verse. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. What's this verse that unbelievers know? It says this, judge not that you not be judged. Man, if there's any verse in the Bible that the world knows, they know that one. Judge not that you not be judged. And the way people interpret this verse is to basically say this, you have no right to judge my behavior or anyone else's behavior. No judgments allowed whatsoever. Ladies and gentlemen, I can just tell you flatly, that is a wrong interpretation of that verse. That's not what it means, and that's not what Jesus intended. Number one, we can say that if that was what Jesus intended, he repeatedly broke his own commandment. If you want some entertaining reading in your Bible, just go to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 is where Jesus lays down a series of woes series of judgments upon the religious leaders. And it's, woe to you, scribes and prophets, Pharisees, teachers of the law. Boom, he lays it on them. Again, I forget how many, maybe there's seven woes. I forget how many there are on the, but it's heavy. You just go, whoa. Now, can you imagine one of the Pharisees coming back to Jesus? You know, Jesus, judge not, lest you be judged. Could you imagine one of them doing that? I, I wish somebody would have, just to see what Jesus' response would have been. No, Jesus was not saying, I forbid any kind of judgment by anyone at any time. No, the correct understanding of what Jesus meant, it's not hard, it's not esoteric, it's not out there. You know where it is? It's in the very next verse. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. Look at what he says in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 7. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus was simply saying this. Don't judge anyone by a standard that you are not willing to be judged by. Now listen, isn't that challenging enough morally? That's plenty challenging. Jesus is saying, the measure you go and judge somebody else by, God will judge you by that same man. So judge not, lest you be judged. If you want to be harsh... And, and really nail other people and hold them all to a very high standard, then you better hold yourself to the very high exacting standard because God says he'll judge you by the same standard that you judge other people. This clearly does not forbid judging someone else's life, but it does forbid judging their life unfairly. 
It does forbid judging their life hypocritically. Or it does forbid doing it with what we might call a judgmental attitude. So do you see, with Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, there's rightly dividing the word of truth, and there's wrongly dividing the word of truth. Wrongly dividing the word of truth. Well, Jesus forbids all judgment. So don't judge my life. Don't judge anything about me. That's wrongly dividing. Rightly dividing is to say, no, Jesus specifically said that whatever judgment we give to others, God will judge them. We must not judge hypocritically or with a harsh manner or, or, or in a judgmental manner. We must judge fairly, judge righteous judgment. Now, understanding that, we understand how important it is for pastors, preachers, Bible teachers to rightly divide the word of truth and not just feel like the Bible is this elastic man. Does anybody remember the toys our kids had? That stretch Armstrong toy where you get the arms and you spread it and you just bend it in whatever position you want. Some people think that the Bible's like that and basically you just stretch it into whatever position you want. That's not the Bible. Our job is to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, going on with that thought, look at the price of not keeping focus. Verse 16, he talks about the faith of some people being overthrown. Verse 16, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. You see, profane and idle babblings refers to anything that takes the focus off the gospel and God's word. These babblings are profane because they are unholy compared to the holiness of God's word. They're idle Because even though people like to hear them, they don't have lasting value. Brothers and sisters, this is a struggle for the church. And and I mean, it is an honest struggle. Do you preach to people's felt needs or do you preach into what you think they should hear? Or do you try to find a combination of both? Listen, this is a difficult problem for the church. If you felt that you could attract a large hearing by focusing on family relationships and in the midst of that preach the gospel, is that a wrong thing? Well, probably not. But could it be done in a wrong way? Yes. These are things that pastors and church leaders need so much wisdom so much grace and it is possible to get off after starting with good intention to get off into a place where you are suddenly speaking profane and idle babblings man's opinions man's teachings man's opinion polls all the rest of it Compared to the word of God, these are profane and idle babblings. And when these things become the focus of the message, then it will increase to more ungodliness. However, at least for a time, such matches can be popular. It says, verse 17, their message will spread. Woo, the message is spreading. Yeah, did you see the rest of verse 17? 
their message will spread like cancer. Whoa. Listen, I I suppose that in somebody's body, who God forbid they're afflicted by cancer, cancer may prove to be pretty popular in their body. It may spread rapidly. But just because it spreads doesn't mean it is necessarily a good thing. And then he points out two people who were of this sort, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now Hymenaeus is mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20 as a man whom Paul delivered to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that he would learn not to blaspheme. And this is the only place of Philetus or where Philetus is mentioned. But what's interesting to me me here is here Paul mentions, at least in some regard, the error of Hymenaeus and Philetus. Nobody, but this kind of thing excites me. It's like, ooh, we get to see what was wrong. These were some of the wrong ideas going around among early Christians that Paul had to warn Timothy about and Paul had to correct in the church. So what were some of these wrong ideas? Well, take a look at starting of verse 17. They were of the sort, they had a message full of verse verse 16 says, of profane and idle babblings. And this is their error. Verse 18, they have strayed concerning the truth. This is interesting. Because it says they strayed concerning the truth, apparently they started out solid in the truth and then drifted. This happens, doesn't it? Aren't there people who start out solid and then stray away? Hymenaeus and Philetus were of this sort. They started out in the truth and then strayed from it. Secondly, they said, verse 18, I find this fascinating. They said that the resurrection is already past. Now, I I, I wish I knew exactly what they meant by that. Maybe they meant that we were already in God's millennial kingdom. This is the glory that God wanted to bring. Or maybe they meant that there was no resurrection to come. It had already occurred. But for whatever reason, they were teaching that the resurrection had passed. They taught something about God's plan for the future that was wrong enough that Paul called it out. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that there is a real importance for us to understand The resurrection is yet future. Our salvation is not yet complete. It will be complete at the resurrection of the body. God still has a work. We are not glorified yet. That is yet to come. And and, and this, this is something that Hymenaeus and Philetus taught against. And then verse 18 says that they did overthrow the faith of some. The only specific false doctrine that they taught had to do with the idea of the resurrection being passed. That's the only one that Paul mentions. Maybe they taught other wrong things. I would say it's likely so. They strayed from the truth in a general sense, but the only specific thing that Paul mentioned was they said that the resurrection is past, but the effect of their teaching was to overthrow the faith of some. Now again, I want to emphasize, this undoubtedly was not their only error. Paul's probably speaking in shorthand because Timothy knew the other errors. He's probably only reminding them of one. And by the way, you know, one strange belief can lead to many other strange beliefs. 
But here Paul says, listen, they overthrow the faith of some. That strikes me. Because sometimes, and I myself, I fall into this thinking, I have to say. Sometimes we look at false teachers and we say, well, they don't overthrow the faith of everybody. There are some people who pay attention to or promote their teaching and they do just fine. But Paul didn't say they overthrow the faith of everybody. He said they overthrow the faith of some. And this is of concern. I want to know, do the people who follow those folks, is their faith overthrown? Now, that would be of something of interest to know. And Paul says, no, this is notable. They overthrow the faith of some. We shouldn't require that everyone who listens to a certain teaching um, has their faith overthrown. It's enough if the faith of some are overthrown. It's like this. A commonly held thing is that when it comes to teachers in the Christian world, um, that we eat the meat and spit out the bones. And look, I suppose there's some truth to that. I don't have to agree with another person's doctrine 100%. There's some truth for that thinking. But look, if there are people choking to death on those bones, if they're choking to spiritual death on those bones, we need to pay attention. And we need to look. Maybe this meal is so bad. Maybe it's so corrupt. That even though not everybody who eats it chokes on the bones, enough do that we need to pay attention and call that out. It's a very, very engaging and challenging thought, I must say. Now, verse 18 kind of ended with some gloom and doom. Verse 19, what a brighter day. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Man, do I love that. If we ended at verse 18, we might find ourselves where we often find ourselves in a state of concern. Maybe it's more than concern. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's more than fear. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's more than anxiety. Maybe it's panic over the state of the church. And are we not sometimes panicked over the state of the church? We look around and go, it's all falling apart. It's all coming apart at the seams. Look at this weirdo and the following he gets. And look at that weirdo and the following they get. And we look around and it's all falling to pieces. And sometimes we just get a little worked up and over panicked when you think, the ship is sinking. Jesus, the gates of hell are overcoming the church. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me remind you of this. I'm just going to read verse 19 again because it's so wonderful. Nevertheless, yes, you've got your Hymenaeus and Philetus out there. You've got them overthrowing the faith of some, and it's a bad thing. And Timothy, you and the pastors associated with you, you must do everything you can to keep your focus on the truth. That doesn't happen. Yes, those guys are out there. But nevertheless, verse 19, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. And the seal is twofold. The first part of the seal, 
The Lord knows those who are his. Then the second part of the seal, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Listen, though men like Hymenaeus and Philetus made dangerous attacks against the church, even though their message spread like cancer, Paul said in the preceding verses, even though the faith of some people was overthrown, let me tell you something, the solid foundation of God stands. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has a strategy in this world. And it doesn't matter how many fall away. It doesn't matter how many reject the truth. It doesn't matter how many go on their own way after profane and idle babblings. The solid foundation of God stands. And again, think of the two seals upon this solid foundation. Number one, the Lord knows those who are his. You know, God knows. God knows those who are his. If guys like Hymenaeus and Philetus continue in their destructive ministry, the Lord knows those who are his. If profane and idle babbling sweep through the church like cancer, the Lord knows those who are his. If the faith of some people is overthrown, the Lord knows those who are his. It's no mystery to God. God knows. God is in control. The second aspect of this that's fascinating is it says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, I have to say a couple things about these statements. The first thing is, it's fascinating to see that it seems like these are both drawn as allusions from Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16, in reference to the rebellion of Korah, do you know what the rebellion of Korah was all about? Moses, who the Bible says was the most humble man on the earth. By the way, we don't believe Moses wrote that line in uh, things. It's, you're not saying, I'm the most humble man on all the earth. But in regard, we believe that was an editorial comment, probably by Joshua or somebody after. But the Bible says that Moses was the most humble man on all the earth. Yet Korah challenged him, saying, Moses, you take too much upon yourself. You want to be the big shot. You want to be in charge of everything. And what did Moses do? Moses just went to God and says, God, you know my heart. Help me to deal with this. What are you going to do? Well, in Numbers chapter 16, God showed what he was going to do. The first thing it says is in verse 5 of Numbers chapter 16, it says, in the morning, the Lord will show those who are his. You know how the Lord showed who was his in the morning? Well, a great big earthquake came and a crack opened up in the ground and those who were not his fell into the earth and were killed. The Lord knows those who were his. But the other one, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. It's perhaps another echo from the story of Korah in verses 26 and 27 where it was a warning to the people after God had judged Korah and those who associated with him. You know, it makes me wonder if Paul, I don't know if he had access to scrolls. He's going to mention some scrolls, some parchments later on. Maybe, he had access, maybe that's what Paul was reading in his Bible lately and it was just running through his mind. That's possible. 
But he knew that this was the foundation of God's work. The Lord knows those who are his. Now, I want you to know something. I don't always know who the Lord's kids are. I don't. I do believe that we can know for ourselves if we're the Lord's kids. You know how I know that? I love this verse from Romans chapter 8, verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If you're God's child, the Holy Spirit will tell you, you're God's child. Isn't that a beautiful thing? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Can we always know about somebody else? Not always, but we can know for ourselves. But this is what you need to understand. God does not sit in heaven wondering and worrying if you're really saved and if you're going to make it to the end. God's not mopping his brow in heaven. Oh, are they going to make it? I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. No, God's in heaven. He knows those who are his. He knows. Now, if we were to just leave that as the one foundation or the one seal on God's foundation. One inscription, so to speak. On God. Okay, we go. Lord knows who is this. Great, that's it. Either I'm his or I'm not. Whatever. Okay, I'll go on and do my thing. No, that's not it. What's the other inscription? What's the other seal on the foundation of God? This is wild. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. It's true that God knows those who are his but he calls those who are his to leave their sin behind. It's possible that somebody might say this. I belong to the Lord. I know I'm his. I'm going to heaven. It doesn't matter how I live. Yet such a son or daughter has forgotten that there's two inscriptions on the foundation of God. You've been acting like there's only one, but there's two foundations. And those who are his will have the desire and the actions to depart from iniquity. If someone has no desire at all to depart from iniquity, if somebody has no actions to depart from iniquity, it's fair to ask if they really belong to Jesus or if they're just deceiving themselves. That's a hard message to bring, but I think it's a needful one. And I can see somebody torturing themselves over this. They would say something like this, David, I I look at my heart and sometimes I love to sin. Do you ever see that in your own heart? No, I'm a child of God. I belong to him. I've been given a new nature. Yet sometimes I see it in my heart. I love to sin. Well, ask yourself that question. How do you feel about that heart that loves to sin? I think the redeemed man or woman, the man or woman who belongs to God will say something like this. I hate my heart that sometimes loves sin. That's something that only the really redeemed man or woman can say with any consistency. Because if we don't know the Lord, what will we say? I'm just fine with my heart that sometimes loves sin. No, We see that attraction still in us. We're still on this side of glory. The resurrection has not yet come, right? 
Hymenaeus and Philetus may have been teaching that the resurrection was past. We know that it isn't. Until then, we say, Lord, I hate it that sometimes I love sin. Would you help me to hate it more and more and to think in an act that will act in increasing honor to you? I want to remind you of it. The solid foundation of God stands. We're not going to change it. Let's just go on with it. Now, going on in our own text, verse 20. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, and if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now, this is fascinating. In the previous verse, Paul has just painted the picture of God's work being like a building, right? The foundation of God, there's an inscription on the foundation. Okay, we got it. There's two inscriptions on the foundation. We just talked all about that. Now Paul says, okay, let me tell you more about God's work being like a building. In his house, there are vessels. Some of the vessels are of gold and some of them are silver. Some of them are wood and some of them are clay. Some of them are for honor and some of them are for dishonor. What would an honorable vessel be? Well, it's like that super nice china that you bring out, you know, just when the special guests there are at holiday time. What would a dishonorable vessel be? Well, it's the ashtray, you know, that you just use for whatever. I mean, you just throw uh, ashes and, and dirt or filth in it. That's all it is. But it has a variety of vessels. So you got the picture here? The work of God, the church of God, is like a great house. Look at that phrase in verse 1. It's a great house. It is a great house. God's work is a great house. It's a great house because of who it belongs to. Who owns the great house of the church? God. And if God owns it, it's a great house. It's a great house because it's been planned and designed by a great architect. He, he, he's fashioned everything according to his plan. It's a great house because of the cost that it took to build that house. You ever drive by a really fancy home and somebody tells you, you know how much that home cost? And they throw out some amazing thing. Wow, I can't believe it cost that much. Well, that must be a great house. How much did it cost to build the house that God calls his church? It cost the blood of the Son of God. His poured out life. No greater cost. Then finally, it's a great house because of its importance. The church is at the center of God's plan of the ages. And in that great house, there's all these vessels. Gold, silver, wood, clay, whatever. Now I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter. What are the latter things? The latter things are the things of dishonor. If we cleanse ourselves from dishonorable things, God will regard us as vessels of honor, sanctified and useful for the master. And I got to say, there's a very challenging phrase in verse 21. This is a phrase, well, looks like I got a little calling right now to rightly divide the word of truth. May I do some right dividing here? Look at the phrase in verse 21. If anyone cleanses 
himself. I find that a very challenging phrase. Now, when you were made clean of your sins, made right before God, when your debt of sin, your stain of sin was canceled by Jesus Christ, did you clean yourself? No. The answer to that is the answer to that question. Jesus, I I didn't want anybody to shout out, yes! No. No, I wanted to make that clear. No is the right answer to that question. You didn't cleanse yourself. Jesus cleansed you. He washes us by his great work on the cross. He makes us clean. We are put into right relationship with God because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's what he did on the cross. He cleanses us. God does not say to us, follow me, Jesus said, clean yourself up and follow me. What does Jesus say? Come to me and I'll clean you up. That's what Jesus says. So Jesus cleanses, but, but, I take it on the basis of verse 21 and other places, hopefully rightly dividing the word of truth, that there is an aspect of cleansing for service that God says, if anyone cleanses himself. Now please, don't understand this wrongly. It's not like God says, You go out and cleanse yourself apart from the empowering of my Holy Spirit, apart from my work in you. You just do it on your own, in your own effort, in your own energy, in your own intentions and all that. You do that and then you come back to me when you're clean and red for That's never how it works. In the life of the believer, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. But there's a place, especially in our service to God, where he says, how much do you want me to use you? If you want me to use you in a greater way, give attention to this cleansing in your life. If anyone cleanses himself. Now, I suppose if you were to look at any particular servant of God and think that God is really using them, you think, wow, they must really be holy. They've really cleansed themselves. Don't be too quick to say that. Because you know what? You don't know their potential of service before God. Maybe God is saying to them, yes, I'm using them. Oh, but if they would cleanse themselves. And again, I never want to say those words with the implication that it's something that we do apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us. No, it can only be done with the active work and reliance of the Spirit of God within us. But I think you understand what I mean. There's just sort of a a dedication to God that just says, Lord, let's get these things cleaned up in my life. And maybe if that particular servant who's being used in a great way, maybe if they gave greater attention to the cleansing of themselves, maybe God would use them in an even greater way. If anyone cleanses himself, what will he be? Look at verse 21. Sanctified and useful. What does sanctified mean? It just means to be set apart. And just as much as there's certain bowls and plates that we use more than others, just as much as there's some that are set aside to honorable purposes, so there are some people who are more sanctified and useful to God than others. They are more prepared for every good work than others. I want you to know that those words I just said, I just told you 
that there are some people more sanctified and useful to God than others, that there are some people more cleansed and prepared. Even as I say those words, I want you to be honest, I have a hard time saying those words. I do. I have a hard time saying them because I hate any class system in the body of Christ. I hate any kind of system that says, well, you know, nothing personal in the room. Um, I hate that system that says, well, you guys are the barely saved people, but you guys are the real dedicated Christians. Careful, I could reverse it anytime I want in my illustration. <laughs> but you, you get the idea? I, I hate this kind of two-tier, or sometimes it's a three-tier system of thinking in the Christian life. Well, here's the run-of-the-mill everyday Christians, and there's the real Christians who are really going for it. There's something, I, I hate that kind of thinking. Listen, we are all debtors saved by a marvelous Savior. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're grateful for anything that God does in and through us, but I can't get around what Paul says here. Paul certainly said, I'll just read the text to you again. May I read it to you again? Verse 20. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Is everybody in God's family equally sanctified and useful for the master. I don't believe Paul would say so. Is everybody in God's family equally prepared for every good work? I don't think Paul would say so. So brothers and sisters, I'm not trying to teach a two-tier Christianity. I'm not trying to teach, yeah, there's the saved by the skin of the teeth people and there's the on fire people. I'm not trying to teach that. But I'm just saying that when it comes down to the individual life before God, We need to honestly grapple with God and say, Lord, I want to be your instrument. And if I'm going to be your instrument, I want to be a good instrument. I want to be the best I can be. So show me, Lord. Show me truly how to be a vessel of honor that would bring you the most glory. Now, I believe in verse 22, Paul spoke to Timothy about how to cleanse himself. He said, if anyone cleanses himself, Timothy, let me tell you how to cleanse yourself. Verse 22, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. The first aspect of cleansing that Paul mentions to Timothy is to flee youthful lusts. Flee them. And he's talking about the kind of temptations and the kind of sins that are especially prominent when someone is a young adult or an adolescent. Sexual temptations, illicit pleasures of the flesh, a longing for fame and glory. These are often youthful lusts. Now, we shouldn't act like they only trip up youthful people. You know what I find interesting in the scriptures? I look at the men who succumbed to youthful lusts prominently in the Bible. I see King David and King Solomon. Those were men who felt, they fell to youthful lusts, but they weren't young when they did it. And then I think of some other guys, like Joseph and Daniel, 
who did not fall to youthful lusts, even though they were young. So we're not talking about young and old. We're talking about the nature of the challenges that come to us. And Paul says, flee those youthful lusts. How about this? If you will not flee youthful lusts, there's a limit to how youthful you will be to the master. Not that he can't use you at all. Certainly not that he doesn't love you or hasn't saved you. But Paul's talking about being available for God's service. Now I love what he says in verse 22. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Paul will not allow holiness to merely be a pursuit of the things that we don't do. It's so easy, so natural for us to see holiness in the negative. And to think, I'm more holy than you because I don't do more things than you don't do. And holiness is just the quest of not doing more and more. No, no, Paul would say, listen, holiness, yes, it's saying no to youthful lusts. It's fleeing from them. But it is the pursuit of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You'll, you'll never just eliminate a bad habit in your life. You have to replace it with something. And so if you want to replace youthful lust, you have to replace it with the pursuit of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And peace, I love what he says in verse 22, with all those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Um, That's what we're to pursue. Now look, sometimes relationships are not right with other people. But we have to know before God that we've done everything we can do to make them right. This is what Paul wrote in Romans 12, 18. He said, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as depends on you. But, verse 23, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. We're back to that thing. Don't argue about things that shouldn't be argued about. All right, let's conclude now. Verse 24 to the end of the chapter we read. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, he says in verse 24. Listen, the great men and women of our world are usually not thought of as being tremendous servants. That's usually not how we think of them. We think of them in terms of conquest, of greatness, of power, of wealth, of influence. God says, no. My servants are great in gentleness. They're patient. In humility, they correct those who are in opposition. And this is what God wants from his servants. I love that phrase in verse 25. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. You correct them with a humble heart, knowing that in some sense, look at that phrase in verse 26, they have been snared by the devil, taken captive by him. Those who are in opposition to God's work, whether they know it or not, they've likely been snared in some way 
And they, we need to pray and ask God to release from any sort of snare or entrapment. God is ready to set us and set them free from any kind of uh, satanic deception that might put our focus in the wrong place. No, to be a servant of the Lord, the way Paul talks about here, I think that we must have three great qualities. Ready? We must be empty, clean, and available. Think of that vessel in God's great house. Empty, clean, and available. First thing, we empty ourselves as much as we can of self. Lord, we just come to you with a humble, surrendered heart. Then we say, Lord, we want to be clean. We receive that cleansing that only Jesus can do within us. And then, Lord, whatever we need to apply our energy of cleansing towards, Lord, help us to do that. Then the other thing we need to do is make ourselves available. It's amazing what God will do through an available man or woman. You know, sometimes you've heard it, haven't you? That the greatest ability is what? Availability. And just that ability to say, Lord, use me. I'm ready to be used. I suppose that there are many people in God's kingdom who have tremendous gifts, tremendous talents, and they could be used of God in his kingdom in a significant way. They just never make themselves available. And God says, you know what? I'll use somebody with lesser gifts, lesser talents. They've made themselves available. But we all want to be in that place where in God's great house, we can be the vessels he uses to the utmost. God helping us will do just that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I don't know what kind of vessels each of us are individually. I don't have any doubt, Lord, that in this congregation, you've got a lot of golden vessels, Lord. You've got some silver. And Lord, maybe you have some humble ones of a pottery or clay. Maybe you've got some wooden vessels here, Lord, whatever it is. Father, we pray that you would move within the hearts of each one of us. If there's an area in life where we need to give attention to cleansing so that we can be more used of you, then show us, God. And Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for a pastor and Pastor Tommy. I want to thank you for a staff that's genuinely concerned about rightly dividing the word of truth. Lord, what a blessing that is. Because it's not true everywhere. But it's true, Lord, here. And in many other churches in our community. But we're thankful, Lord, that it's true here. Help us to do that, Lord. And to serve you right. And to make the main thing the main thing throughout our life. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.